I just want to say this is a, a wonderful opportunity uh, that God has given to us through technology. It's uh, something that we would never have thought of uh, when I came to Grace Church 38 years ago, but here we are. And uh, we now have technology that can help us overcome, to some degree, all of the issues that we're going through in this world today. Uh, The message that I'm going to preach here uh, today is uh, the Macedonian miracle. We've been looking at that uh, for, um, well, this is the third week. This is the message I was going to give on March the 15th, and it seems like so much has happened since March the 15th. It seems like the world has completely gone upside down. But the one thing that remains constant is the word of life. The prophetic word of the living God does not change. And as a matter of fact, he knew that this would happen. He knew that all of the that we're going through today would be part of our life today. For the most part, Zechariah will be speaking to the things of the future. For his time, some things have already occurred, and uh, much of the things that he's going to be speaking about are yet to happen. They're in the eschatological future, of which, ladies and gentlemen, I believe we are getting closer and closer and closer. Even this whole pandemic is um, a picture of what that end time is going to be like. So we've been in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, and I'm going to dissect it into four different parts. And and for those who have not been in, uh, anchored on Sunday morning, we've already looked at the first two parts. The first two parts are the plan of the Messiah, and that's in verses 1 through 8. Then the second part is the theophany of the Messiah in verses 9 through 10. And at this particular juncture, I'm going to finish it up with the last two of those um, parts that have been dissected in the, out of that passage. The covenant of the Messiah out of verses 11 through 13, and the victory of the Messiah out of verses 14 through 17. So let's have a look at this, and we're going to unfold this here. This is the plan of the Messiah. This is the plan of God that's happening today. Zechariah 9, verses 1 through 8, is the pronouncement that the word of Yahweh is against the various lands that were there. And we went through each of those. We talked about uh, uh, the various lands that were conquered and and uh, overrun, Tyre and Sidon and all of those kinds of things. And so we don't need to do that again. But this is the plan of the Messiah. This was a pronouncement of judgment, judgment against these places. These uh, places, as I said, these, this judgment was fulfilled, I believe, by Alexander the Great. And we went through that message a few weeks ago. And so you can take a look at that uh, and see where I came up with that uh, particular uh, issue and, and, and saying that it was Alexander the Great. And I've checked out with many, many other scholars, and they have uh, uh, all pointed to that same fact. Uh, the first eight verses focused on the Messiah's return to the temple to protect and to bless his chosen people. The focus now in verse 9 is on a future king. This is the prophetic king of hope. Uh, this is the uh, ideal Davidic king. This is the Messiah himself. Uh, beloved, part two is the theophany of the Messiah. We saw that in verses 9 through 10. I was encouraged in my own heart after I preached it that somebody wanted me to preach it somewhere else, but that is the theophany of the Messiah. And we see in verse 9, it was focused on the first advent of the Messiah coming, while verse 10 focused on the second advent of the Messiah, the return of the Messiah. And the first advent was true. Jesus Christ came to earth. He was here for us. He came and he shed his blood for us. 
the second will as well. If the first was true, certainly the second will be as well. And folks, I just want to take a pause here. What a grand hope we have. What a a grand expectation we have. What a grand anticipation we have. What a grand confidence we have in the fact that God, the God of the universe, is intimately and specially and specifically involved with his children. And he says he's going to return. And, And again, I see all that's going on in our world today as part of that fulfilling of that plan. Today, I hope to complete the section. I know we will in Zechariah chapter 9. So let's look at the last two parts of the magnificent prophecy. I'm only going to read Zechariah 9, 11 through 17, so that you can get a flavor of what we're looking at. Starting in verse 11, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners, who have the hope. This very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you. For I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill the bow with Ephraim. And I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. And I will make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. And his arrow will go forth like lightning, and the Lord God will blow the trumpet and will march in the storm winds of the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them, and they will devour and trample on the sling stones, and they will drink and be boisterous as with wine, as they fill will be filled like a sacrificial basin, drenched like the corners of the altar. And the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they are as the stones of a crown, sparkling in his hand. For what comeliness and beauty will be theirs? Grain will make the young men flourish and new wine the virgins. The third part is the covenant of the Messiah. We see that in verses 11 through 13, and we see that. Let's start in verse 11. As for you also, is the way Zechariah starts this section off. All of this is a link back to verses 9 and 10. In those verses, we saw the beginning of the description of the future, and so Zechariah is continuing in that description. We have in these verses some of the most profound blessed words of Scripture. I hope you notice this. This is speaking about the things that are going to come even for us in the future. It speaks of the arrival of the King of Kings. The Messiah comes to reign and to rule the whole earth. How is this possible? How can this be? This happens because of the covenant of the Messiah. We see that in the first verse there of of this chapter, uh, in this section, verse 11. Because of the blood of the covenant with you. This blood of the covenant foreshadows the blood that will be spilt at Calvary, at Golgotha Hill, where Jesus is going to give up that blood. Friends, these words are familiar to us New Testament Christians, the blood of the covenant. We hear it every time, and especially we hear it every time, at communion service. In Mark 14, 24, you don't need to turn there, but... In Mark 14, 24, it says this, And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Uh, Something to realize there is he says, for many, not for all. All will not be saved. Only those who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, it is because of the Messiah's blood 
Because that shed blood was there on the cross, we have entrance now into relationship with him. It was a grave cost. It was a costly uh, situation where God sent his only begotten son on our behalf. It was an incredible cost to set us free. Let me take you to uh, Hebrews chapter 13, where we see the same um, phrase being used there in Hebrews 13 of uh, the blood of the covenant. And in Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verse 20, it says this, Now the God of peace, who brought you up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. That eternal covenant was written for the Jews, but we also get to participate in it. We also get to rejoice in it. In verse 21, it says this, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. This coming of that Messiah, that eternal covenant that we are are participating in is going to be a blessing for our souls, a blessing for our heart, a blessing for our lives. Beloved, the blood covenant that is spoken of in Zechariah chapter 9 is the blood that ratifies the covenant of blessing. The lifeblood spilt in the Old Testament was a symbol of the blood. It is a symbol of the fulfillment of the New Testament blood that would be shed out and poured out for us on behalf of sinners. And we are all sinners. We know that. Beloved, the text tells us that the Messiah, through the covenant, set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. I I had to look that up and try to figure out, okay, what is a waterless pit? What that is the indication of is a waterless pit is known as a cistern, much like a pit that Joseph was thrown into, where his brothers were going to sell him into slavery. They put him in that pit uh, to hold him there for a while. This is where prisoners would be held captive as uh, it, it was too deep to climb out and it was secure uh, from them being able to escape. And and so since I brought up Joseph, I thought I'd, I'd go back to Genesis chapter 37 and give us an indication of uh, this waterless pit and what it looked like to some degree. Um, we can see what happened with Joseph in his life. But in Genesis chapter 37, verse 23 and 24, It says this, so it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic. That was the very colored uh, tunic that he had. And they took him and they threw him into a pit. Now the pit was empty without any water. If his brothers had left him there, he would have died there. If his brothers didn't take him out to sell him into slavery, he would have died there. But they did take him out. And we see it also in Jeremiah where Jeremiah is placed in, in a pit as well. If you were in one of these waterless pits, you were in a hopeless, helpless situation. And it is not not until God comes along and enters into your dreadful, God-forsaken life. And, And frankly, that's the picture of where we are before Christ. When we, before Christ, are in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. There's nothing there. And, and frankly, we would be said to be in a pit of despair. And uh, there is no life in us, and there's nothing to give us life except the Lord Jesus Christ when he calls us by his grace. Outside interve- intervention is absolutely necessary to be taken out of a pit like this 
that Joseph found himself in, that Jeremiah found himself in, and that we find ourselves in before salvation. I, I got to tell you, this is a great picture, great picture of unrepentant sinners stuck with no way of escape, but the Messiah through his blood sets them free. You know, in these last few days, uh, I've had the privilege of being able to go shopping and uh, see that these people are so more, much more concerned about toilet paper and napkins and, and other essentials, food even, uh, rather than their spiritual life, rather than where they're going to be uh, after they die. They're more uh, afraid of the death than they are of the life that they would have after their death. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what we look forward to as believers. We don't have to get stuck in the, the, the fear of this world. We had no way of escape, but God helped us by his sending his son, by setting us free. Stuck in the guilt of our sins, no way of relief, but yet Jesus Christ comes. It says here in the passage, it says, I have set your prisoners free. Uh, it, it's interesting, Zechariah uses the perfect tense verb here. It's used here, giving us the picture of a completed action. Usually this kind of verb is used to describe past events. And so here we have this is something that's absolutely certain. It will occur. There is no question about it. This is a description of something that will occur in the future, but it's already happened, so to speak. This shows that from God's perspective, the action was as good as done. That always makes me remember uh, Isaiah 46, where Isaiah the prophet says this, I have planned it, meaning God, and surely I will do it. If God plans it, he's going to do it. There's no way around it. It's up to him. Verse 12 of our passage here, it says, return to the stronghold. Could also be return to the fortress or your fortress. Place your hope upon the rock is basically what it's saying. Return to the stronghold, Zechariah is saying to the people. This is what you need to do. You need to find the rock and you need to return to him. In this day and age, for any of us who are unsure of what's going to happen here in the future, we need to return to the rock. We need to make sure that we're placing our hope on him and only on him. Makes me think of Isaiah 26, and I've used this verse many, many, many times, but this seems to be most appropriate. So Isaiah 26, verses 1 through 4, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He set up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. Ladies and gentlemen, that's talking about us that we remain faithful, remain faithful to what we know about the scriptures, that we can always go back to the scriptures. Verse three, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. I know that you have relatives that are not in perfect peace. They're frightened. They're scared. They have no idea what's going to happen, and, and they don't know how to get through all of this. And so they run, they get more, they hoard, they do all kinds of things. They sit in their house and they don't move. It's much like a a woman after the 1994 earthquake. And my wife and I were going around the neighborhood seeing who we could help. And and there was this water pouring out of this front door. 
And we kept coming down the driveway, and I said, there's something got to be wrong. So we went up there, knocked on the door, nobody answered. But the water keeps pouring out the front door. We open it up, and there's a woman absolutely frightened out of her mind, sitting in the living room, watching the water pour out of her house, not knowing what to do. That's what happens when people don't have a secure foundation. But let's finish Isaiah 26. It says, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because what? He trusts in you and only you. Verse four, trust in the Lord forever for in God, the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. No matter what happens around us, we have an everlasting rock. Friends, there's no hope. There is, a, there is a hope that springs eternal for the chosen people of God. The scriptures shout with God's love for his people Israel. Isaiah 44, 21 says this, Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will be not be forgotten by me. Ladies and gentlemen, we have that same hope. He is not going to forget us. Verse 12, let's go back to Isaiah, uh, to uh, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 9, 12. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners, who have the hope. God is a covenant-keeping God. We as his people need to have that confidence and trust in times of trouble, especially like these times. He has liberated us from sin, Satan, and death. What else do we have to fear? There's nothing that we have to fear. We have nothing to fear. Remember that. God is the God of restoration. God is the God of our hope. It is in him alone that we find that hope. Look at what Zechariah says here. I will restore double to you, double to you. Prisoners of hope describes the people, the Hebrew people. They uh, may be held in captivity in a sense, but the blood covenant says that they will be a, a people that will be restored to double. Yahweh is that kind of God. He is a God of hope, and he is the God of the people of hope. The next phrase is so vital to the understanding of this verse. It says this, this very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you. Interesting that this is put here in the Jewish tradition. uh, The firstborn son always was given double inheritance uh, uh, more than the other children, get double more than his siblings. Up to this point, Israel has been on the back burner, so to speak. But there is a day when Yahweh will call them forward to receive a double portion. That's what we have to look forward to. Encourage the Jewish people that their God is still looking for them to return to the promised land. Verse 13, beloved, God enters into this war war here. And let's look at verse 13. It says this, for I will bend Judah as my bow and I will, uh, and I will fill the bow of Ephraim and I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and I will make you like a warrior's sword. God is going to go after his enemies. He enters into the war against his enemies. This shows that the promise will be fulfilled because God says so, and he enforces it, and he enforces it in divine warfare. It does not matter how strong Israel is as a nation. It does not matter how, how mighty they are. It only matters how holy Israel is. Israel conquered their enemies on occasion. 
And they did it not because they were mightier and, uh, and stronger than others, whether it be Gideon when he took fewer men and, and God kept saying to him, take fewer men and fewer men and fewer men, and he was still able to overcome the enemy. Or Hezekiah, when Hezekiah cried out to God, <clears throat> showing his, his love and affection for him, <clears throat> and God killed 185,000 of Israel's enemies in one night with one angel. And so we can see <clears throat> that God is there for his people and he will protect them, but they need to be um, walking in holiness as well. Psalm 24, 8 says this, who is the king of glory? The Lord, that is Yahweh, strong and mighty, Yahweh mighty in battle. That's who we have. That's who we serve is the God that is mighty in battle. <clears throat> You may not want to go to battle against the the Lord Almighty. You better not go against the Lord God Almighty. Verse 13, for I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill the bow with Ephraim. God will use Judah and Ephraim as instruments to defeat his enemies. Judah, the most southern part of Israel, and Ephraim, the most northern part, at least pictures of the most northern part And he says that he will use them in battle. And he says, and I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. Now, I I don't think he's speaking specifically necessarily of Greece here as a country. I think what he's speaking of specifically here is uh, against the Gentile nations. It is what is going to happen because certainly it has not happened. I believe Greece is here used as a representative of the pagan godless nations. I believe this is something that is going to happen. It has not happened yet. Some of the commentators say it happened during the era of the Maccabees, and but there was no great battle there that was won. There was no true ultimate Israel taking over. It is uh, not true. I don't think that's ultimate victory. That is described in these verses. Verse 13, For I will bend Judah as my bow, and I will fill uh, the bow of Ephraim. It gives a picture of, of these entities acting as weapons of war, strong, mighty weapons of wars, of war. Um, Zechariah uses these words, bows and arrows and swords, and gives us a picture that Yahweh is readying his forces against Greece, which I believe is a, is a picture of the pagan nation that is still being put together, that is still happening. This is the divine war yet to come. So I, as I said, when we started, we have four parts to this that has been dissected into four parts. The, the plan of the Messiah, verses 1 through 8, the theophany of the Messiah, Messiah 9 and 10, the covenant of the Messiah, which we just looked at, and now the victory of the Messiah. And we see that in verses 14 through 17. The victory of the Messiah, verse 14, then Yahweh will appear over them, the one who is their protector. The one who is their advocate displays himself in defending them as their guardian. He is there to protect them. Folks, there is absolutely no question that this is God and that he is there for his people. He is going to protect them from all that will harm them. His arrow will flash lightning. He will blow the trumpet thunder and he will march in the storm. That's what he's going to do. This sounds like a military exercise. God is going to devastate his enemy and the enemy of his people. 
the picture here is is almost like something out of a great military history. The majestic king comes, directs his arrows, and marches to victory. The words for God mentioned here are both Adonai and Yahweh. This points to the sovereign lordship of God as covenant-keeping God. Listen to the description given in Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. If you want, you can turn there. We're going to look at this just for a little bit. The description that's there, it says, Did the Lord rage against the rivers, or was your anger against the rivers, or was your wrath against the sea, that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare, the rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and quaked. The uh, downpour of water swept by, the deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. In your anger, you trampled the nations. And frankly, folks, we know that they deserve it. They've forsaken God. They've done everything against God. He went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation with your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil you to lay him open from the thigh to the neck. There is a destruction that's going to happen, folks, and it's going to be God overtaking this evil. Verse 14, you pierced with your his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the seas with your horses on the surge of many waters. This is God taking over. This is God bringing judgment against those who have been against him. This is the victory that we're going to see, that God is going to win. Back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 14. And will march in the storm winds of the south. <clears throat> as you know, as we've gone through Zechariah, we've heard that judgment often came to Israel from the north, uh, whether it be the Babylonians, the Assyrians. We, we've seen that over and over again. They can, it normally comes from the north. From the south, though, when it gives that kind of description, came blessing, as it is depicted here as well. There is a blessing that the storm comes from the south. Uh, the, uh, and, the, uh, and you will march in the storm winds of the south. And so he is going to come in blessing. Verse 15, the Lord of hosts will defend them. Uh, the Hebrew word here for defend uh, in Zechariah and in, in every other context speaks of a, a defense of Jerusalem. The Lord of hosts defends his city. God is a shield for his people. You think about it, ladies and gentlemen. Israel's been there a long time. The Israelites have been there a long time. That city is still there because God protects that city. And they will devour and trample on the sling stones. This more than likely is to be taken as a picture of Israel trampling on their enemies. Beloved, the description here is one of complete overwhelming devastation. 
This is a consuming victory that God grants his people. However, in essence, it is his total victory, a consuming victory. Their enemy is defeated and the Hebrew Hebrews overcome and attacks their enemies and walk upon their weapons because the description here is walking on the sling stone, which is a weapon. Psalm chapter 60, verse 12 says this, through God, we shall do valiantly and it is he who will tread down our adversaries. I think even of what's going on today, we have nothing to fear with all of the, the hoopla that's going on, trying to get to a grocery store, standing in line, uh, only being able to take one thing of a particular product or whatever it is, staying six feet away from people. You can't have more than 10 people uh, um, congregating in an area. It's absolutely incredible. Now, I, I, I used to read science fiction. I would never, ever have thought that we would ever get here like this. And, and I don't think I ever read a science fiction book that would be like this. But this is God's book. This is what God is doing. Verse 15, and they will drink and be boisterous as with wine. A great victory there, folks. It's a great picture of a victory. It's a, it's a banquet that's going to take place. God's going to be there for that celebration. They are celebrating the victory of the Messiah. They are loud in this celebration. They're boisterous in this celebration. Well, today we may be quiet. We will be boisterous in that celebration. They will be like those who drink wine and get out of control. Like them, not them boisterous, but they will not be drunk. Verse 16, and the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. Can't wait for that day. Can't wait for that day where he takes his flock home to be with him. Clearly, they are delivered by the victory of the Messiah. It is not their personal strength. It's not their wisdom. It's not their their might. It has nothing to do with that. But it's the Messiah who vanquishes their enemy. And here's the reason for the Messiah saving them. For they are as stones of a crown sparkling in his land. He sees them as sparkling stones. These are God's precious chosen people. The people of the blood covenant that he purchases with his sacrifice for their sins. They are the crown jewels. The people of God are his gemstones of great value because they came at a very high price, the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. Beloved, in God's coming kingdom, his people will enjoy the banquet of blessings. Now, verse 17, to wrap up this section here of the victory of the Messiah, the picture changes a little bit. The picture changes, and and once again, the people see the, the rich reward of following the one true Messiah. And in this day and age, and I need to put this in here once again is to remind you, we need to continue to follow him. Even though we don't gather together, even though we don't have fellowship together, even though we're unable to meet even in Bible studies together, we need to continue to remain in fellowship with one another, making sure that we're in touch with one another, making sure that we're in touch with this. I know in the mornings when I get up, it's so, so tempting to go and see what happened on the news last night. What kind of new restrictions do we have today? But no, we need to go to the scriptures and see what God has for us today. So remember that. So as we look at verse 17, it says, For what comeliness or or goodness and beauty will be theirs? The stones of verse 16, the, the people of the flock are attractive. They are then blessed 
with economic prosperity in the form of agricultural prosperity. Their grain, we see that grain will make young men flourish when they have lots of food. Oh, you don't have to run to the grocery store. You don't have to do those kinds of things. No longer in captivity, no longer in a waterless pit, but now in abundance. Beloved, our God is there and he always saves. Our God is there, a saving God. He loves us. He wants to bless us. We cannot forget him in a time like this. As we live out these days here, we need to not be in fear. We need to continue to realize that fear only puts us in enslavement. Perfect love, 1 John 4.18, cast out fear. And we need to have that perfect love for Christ and for God and for his word, and even for the fellowship that we will be able to enjoy. If we only have salvation, and that's all that we got, we're richer than everybody else on this planet. If that's all that we have, we don't need all the material goods that others have. Your redemption was costly. That is a great blessing. This chapter that Zechariah wrote for us was dissected into four parts. The plan of the Messiah, verses 1 through 8. The theophany of the Messiah, verses 9 through 10. Then the covenant of the Messiah, verses 11 and 13. And now lastly, the victory of the Messiah, verses 14 through 17. I hope, a sincere hope, that you have been enriched because of these messages, that that God continues to love his children. It is incomprehensible that even in this day and age, there are some who wonder if God loves them or not. Folks, it's not how much we have. It's who we know and who loves us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and for this opportunity, what technology has done for us. Lord God, we pray that we would be able to be back together soon, that our fellowship would be strong, boisterous even, because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.